Romans chapter 13 today, and what a great chapter uh, you can begin to see. Last week, I, I, we laid out the background to our study in Romans chapter 13, and uh, I hope now you can better see and understand why I did that, because uh, <clears throat> there's so much confusion and misinformation about uh, not only our own government, but how you and I as Christians are to uh, react to it or respond to it uh, in all the things that go on. Out of this great chapter, and there's, this chapter is a great chapter for a number of reasons, but I think one of the things that it really focuses on, and I try to make this all of the time, but sometimes certain places in the Bible are just easier to see it. Uh, I want you to get out of this, if nothing else, I want you to see what is faced with looking at our government, the day and age that we live in, the world that we live in, like we talked about last week, the absolute importance for a, an absolute standard in your life. We live in a world that's changing minute by minute. We live in a world where values that 20 years ago were good values are no longer values. And we have to have something that never changes. And that's why the world hates the Bible and hates Christians, simply because the Bible is the one thing, as somebody said one time, it's the anvil of which all the philosophies and all the ideas of man have been broken on. Because the Bible never changes. And when you learn in your life the absolute standard that it represents, uh, you will have something to judge everything by, and you'll never be caught uh, unaware of what's going on around you. I think that's what the book of Romans does. You know, we've been talking a lot about the word perspective. And you're going to hear that a lot. We talk about the three P's of ministry, you know, purpose, passion, and perspective. But right now we're focusing on the aspect of, perfe- uh, of perspective. And if there's one word that the book of Romans does in our life, in everything, in all four sections, it does, it gives us a perception of what God is doing. And that is the absolute standard I'm talking about. It's not a matter of what our country's doing. It's not a matter of what Congress is doing or the Senate's doing. It's not a bad what some world leader is doing, what France is doing, or what South America is doing, or Argentina is doing. It's no matter what Russia does or Cuba does or what happens in the Middle East. The only real issue that you and I have to focus on in history and what's going on in our world today is what God is doing. That's the key. And the book of Romans forms our perspective in every aspect. And in chapter 13, as you began to see last week, and I hope you'll see even clearer today, we get the perspective of our government. Now, today we're going to start working down through these verses. Last week was kind of like an introduction and a background. Now you're going to see it go to work. Let's start reading in chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 5. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that uh, be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that uh, resist shall receive to themselves damnation. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Thou wilt then uh, not be afraid of the power. Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God for thee to good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil." Wherefore, ye must needs be subject not only for wrath, but for also for conscience' sake. Now, Father, we thank you again and praise you for this great chapter, for this great book that's found in this great Bible, our absolute standard. 
help us today as we move down through here to give us clearly insight into what we need to see that we can better have our own perspective of where we're at in relationship to God and our country. Help us to become aware Christians, Father, that we're not in a little box someplace, in a little corner, that we don't see outside and what God is doing. Help us not to be caught up with the occupational dominancy that, that so many people have, that thinking that what they're doing is the most important thing in the world and miss what God's doing. Help us today. We'll be careful to give you the honor and the glory and the praise in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, you remember last week I set the scene with giving you some incredible, tremendous truths about how we should approach our government and uh, get the right perspective. First of all, I told you, if you remember, that in the Bible, God ordains three institutions. One of them is the family and marriage. The other one is the church. And then the other one is the government. Then, if you remember, I took you back through the book of Daniel. And I showed you how the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, give you a complete historical record uh, of the Gentile nations that are going to be on this earth from 606 B.C. right up to the time that you and I are living in right now. That I define for you one of the great key terms in the Bible called the times of the Gentiles. We saw that the times of the Gentiles is the period of time that God is not dealing with the, the world through the nation of Israel but he's going to deal the, through the world uh, through the nations. And we talked about that. We got a little insight into the fact that uh, we get bombarded all around the, uh, and everything that we listen to and everything that we hear, how that our form of government, a democracy, our form of government, of capitalism, is, is such a great, uh, is such a great uh, uh, form of government. And yet in the book of Ecclesiastes, we saw that all forms of government are ultimately against God. They may look good, they may stand for some core principles, but the bottom line is the number one reason of all of them uh, are wrong is because every government system, whether it's communism or whether it's democracy in America or capitalism, all take a stand against the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how much you get involved in politics. I, I don't get involved in it. I'm not political at all. Uh, I told you, uh, you know, that... Uh, that, uh, that uh, we'll talk about it here in a minute. I talked about how that you're, not, you're in this world, but you're not of this world. But did you watch Obama's State of the Union address uh, this Wednesday night? Now, you know what? If you're going to be an informed Christian, and I know, you know some of you had Bible things going on through the week. I understand that. But that's where they got DVDs and VHSs and 8-tracks and all that stuff. You know? But the bottom line is this. i tell you what he didn't say. He didn't get up there and say, basically, uh, now folks, uh, uh, and, I, and I already know, I didn't have to listen to Obama know what kind of the union, the state the union's in. It's in a mess. But instead of getting up there and saying, you know what, we got some issues, we got some problems, and we got some things we got to deal with, but we're going to get through this because uh, the one that's going to help us through it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we just got to hang on together as a nation because the Lord's coming back and he's going to be our real defense. You didn't hear any of that. Not at all. No, it was how great that uh, he. It was how great that uh, uh, all our programs are. What all we're going to do. And did you ever notice that the presidents, because there's a there's a movement in America of conservatism that uh, wants to have God in their life, they all throw in this little cheap word at the end. And God bless America. You know why they, they, you can get away with saying God bless America? Because God can be anything in anybody's mind. 
Some of you, uh, maybe in your time in your life, uh, you were in uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or in Narcotics Anonymous. You know, if you came through uh, some time, tough time in your life. And Alcoholics Anonymous has helped a lot of people. And Alcoholics Anonymous started out with uh, you putting your trust and in, in power in God. But as the country fell apart and God fell apart, now that you don't hear about God. Oh, you hear God, but God is whatever you want to make God to be. Now God is a higher power. You hear the president, the Congress, and they'll talk about God, God bless America, God bless this, but they'll never bring up the name of Jesus Christ. Never will. Never will. You know, when Congress goes in session, they always have some preacher come in and, and lead in prayer. They have a chaplain in Congress. And when you want to go, and if they ever invited you to go and pray, uh, and that's a big honor for some guys, you know, the thing is you've got to submit your prayer for approval before you ever get there. You know why you got to do that? Because they want to make sure you don't use the name of Jesus Christ. You can pray in Congress and God up one side and God down the other, but you can't bring in the name of Jesus Christ. Because God can be anything, but Jesus Christ is the perspective of who God is. You know why they don't want to hear the word Jesus Christ? You know why they won't let you talk about Jesus Christ? You know why Obama didn't get up and talk about Jesus Christ? You know why the government won't talk about Jesus Christ? It's because when you talk about Jesus Christ, you're forced to deal with the fact that he's coming back someday, Revelation chapter 19, and all these governmental systems are going to go by the wayside. We don't want that. We don't want that at all. You learned two great verses last week. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, which says, The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. Whoa, that's a powerful verse to keep in your back pocket for understanding what God is doing with the nations. Then we learned in Psalm chapter 9, verse 17, that the wicked, should, uh, the wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. I told you, and you learned three great concepts about you and me as a child of God in this world. The first one, it was Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, which says that right now, if you're saved, you're seated in heavenly places. Ephesians 2, 19 talked about the day you got saved, your citizenship changed. Now you're a citizen with a fellow citizen with the saints up in heaven, the Bible says. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says that your job vocation changed, and now you're no longer an American. Now you're an ambassador whose citizenship is up in heaven, yet you're seated on the right hand of God with Christ, and now your job down here is to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, and you're neutral. I'm not a Republican, nor am I a Democrat. I'm a Christian. And as a Christian, I take a stand, uh, not, for the de 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 not for the democracy, not for the capitalism, not for the Democrats, not for the Republicans. I take a stand for Jesus Christ. If I had one prayer today that God would grant just like that, it would be God come back, wipe this thing out, and set up your government. And that's just where it's at. So you just know where I'm coming from. Now, today we're going to begin to work down through these verses, and we're going to see how all of this helps you and me form our perspective, because we need to have a perspective. Now, look at verse 1, Romans chapter 13. It says this, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are ordained of God. Now, in our lives, uh, there's really in, in, really in everything in life, there's one concept that is going to make us or break us in life. And uh, it doesn't matter if you're saved or you're lost. It doesn't matter if you're talking about the church as a Christian or the government. It doesn't matter if you're a lost person or a saved person. There is one word that is the predominant word when you start to look at governmental systems. And it's simply the word authority. Authority. 
Now, if you're a child of God here this morning, if you're a saved person, the authority that you and I are under or the authority of the Word of God, that authority extends to the church and you submit yourself to that aspect of authority. God has set up a structure of authority for the Christian and God has set up an authority structure for the unsaved people and that's called government. The church is a body of believers that operate under an authority. The Bible at the beginning, the church itself, and then as it works down through uh, the, the Christianity and, uh, and we submit ourselves to uh, the Bible. That's why you hear me say this all the time, that the Bible is the final authority in everything that we should do. You hear me say it all the time. I've said it for absolutely years. The Bible needs to be the final authority in everything that you and I do. You hear me talk about models. You hear me talk about types in the Bible. You hear me talk about principles in the Bible. I personally think that as Christians, we ought to have a principle. We ought to have a verse, a principle, a concept for everything we do in life. It's certainly the major things that are life-changing events. It's, it's never ceased to amaze me how many, so many of God's people, uh, to use the common term, when it comes to their everyday life, simply fly by the seat of their pants. They don't really have any direction from the Bible. They don't really understand the principles involved on whatever they try to do. They just simply think that if it's a right thing and it looks right, then God must be in it. And if it's a bad thing, then they mean to stay away from it. And that's simply not true. You need to come to the point in your life, and many of you are. I mean, you really are. But many of you are coming to the place in your life that you now are, are cataloging the principles. And you hear me use them all the time. There's hardly anything that we do, if anything that we do, in this church that there's not a model behind it that is based on the Word of God. Because I understand that that's exactly how it needs to operate. My style of ministry as such is I never tell anybody what to do. I never tell you what to do. When somebody comes in and they've got marital problems or they've got personal problems, um, I don't tell them what to do. What I do is lay out the biblical options that they have. What I try to do in people's lives individually when they come in to me, and they come in with a various different needs and situations and circumstances. I try to do the same thing one-on-one -on -one that I do in this church. I don't have a right to tell you how to live your life. I don't get into your world and follow you around and see if you dot all the uh, I's and cross all the T's in your Christian life. That's not my job. My not job is not to go down inside your family and make sure you're praying with your kids and doing that. That's not my job. Now, a lot of pastors think that's their job, but that's not my job. My job is onefold. My job is to stand behind this pulpit, open up the Bible, and teach you what the Bible says about circumstances and situations in life. My job is to show you cause and effect. My job is to show you, okay, here's your problem, here's how you got into it, here are your options, and here's how you get out of it. But you got to choose. You got to choose. At the end of the day, it's your choice. I never tell people what to do, but in any given situation, I will show you the principles involved and how they operate, and will show you the results of what you're gonna, what's going to happen whichever way you go. Obviously, I'm going to tell somebody, you obviously, if you're a child of God, need to do what's right. But doing what's right is based on you and what you decide to do. When it comes down to the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, we can say whatever we want. I can preach the greatest sermons in the world, and I usually do. I can lay out the Bible for you upside down and inside out. 
But at the end of the day, you know what? Life is still about choices, isn't it? At the end of the day, with all that I teach and all that I lay out and all the energy I put into everything that I do, at the end of the day, it's still your choice. I mean, you have to decide, and some people, you know, they, it's like I say, some people never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. It's your choice. And uh, you hear me say all the time that I believe the King James 1611 authorized version is the absolute finalist standard for everything in faith and practice in your life. I believe it was that way from when it was put together in 1600 right up to the early 1900s in America and a little bit beyond. You know why. We talked about it many, many times. We're not going to get into it today, but let me just say something. You know why this Christianity is in such a mess? You know why this world is in such a mess? Many of you have been burned by churches. Many of you have. You've been burned by churches. Many of you have been burned by pastors. Many of you have been burned by a political group within churches, what we call the system. Many of you young kids that are in your, in your early 20s now, you were burned by Christian schools. Your parents were led to believe that if they sent their kids to Christian school, that there was a big sign over the Christian school that said the devil can't come in here. And he sent you off to Christian school, and they just followed what they knew at the time and did the best they could. And I'm not criticizing anybody. But the bottom line is, you now know, and we've talked about it many, many times, what a fallacy that was. Remember I told you last week that there's no such thing as a Christian nation? I got another headliner for you. There ain't anything such as a Christian school either. There's only one thing that's Christian. And it's you if you're sitting here this morning. <laughs> that's all. That's all. That's all. And I told you, I said, uh, you know what? It's uh, the reason why this country is in the mess that it's in. The reason why churches are the mess that they're in is because there's no final authority anymore. If there's ever one book in the Bible that represents with the time that we live in. It's the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Now, maybe you're not familiar with the book of Judges. I don't know. It's a time when the nation of Israel goes under the rule of men that, and women that God put over them as judges. It's a very bad time for the nation of Israel. It's a bad time because they keep throwing God's authority off. It's a very bad time because the nation of Israel doesn't want to adhere to the principles. And they want to do their own thing. So they keep casting off God's authority and going after the world. So God sends them judges when they get into a mess and that judges deliver them and then they go right back into the mess again. I think we talked about that in our men's meeting and our lady meeting called the law of human collapse, didn't we? You know what? The whole book of Judges can be summed up in the last chapter because it's the verse that puts the whole book into perspective for you in chapter 21, verse 25, and it simply says this. There's no king in Israel. And every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. That's the book of Judges. Translation. There's no authority now, and everybody's doing what they think is right. That's the problem in churches today. It's the problem in America today. And that's a problem in most of Christians' lives. We're not under any final authority. We don't have anything that we're accountable to. Therefore, we pretty much do what we want to do. And that's the problem we face. That's the problem we face. All right, now God has, a, has an authority structure for the church. He also has an authority structure for government. And these are the things that I want you to see. Look at verse 1 again. No power but of God. 
and the power ordained of God. Now, let me explain to you, because I want you to fully understand this, to be able to grasp Romans chapter 13 and, and get the perspective that you need to have of the time that you live in. Uh, let me show you what God's authority structure runs like. Now, God is the ultimate authority. We know that. What God has done is he's given his authority to two people, two beings. One of them is his son, Jesus Christ, and the other one is the devil. I showed you last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, I showed you how that all human government is turned over to the devil at 606 B.C. And even though I today, that we're living in 2010, the times of the Gentiles is nothing more when the devil is running the world through nations. And if you doubted that last week, I want you to take now your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 4. I want to show you another great principle here that you want to put in along with this one in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And uh, this one pretty much sums it up. You can't get it from this one. You're probably not going to get it. Now, here's a conversation that the devil had with Jesus Christ himself. This is not an indirect verse that Paul or somebody wrote this. This is a, a record of God, uh, Jesus Christ and the devil having a conversation. Now, watch what happened. And this is in, when he's being tempted. Look at verse 5, Luke 4, 5. And the devil, taking him, Jesus, up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Watch this. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. Here it comes. For that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I, I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, and shalt be thine. You know what he's saying? He told Jesus right there that all power and glory was given to him. What did he mean by that? Why would God give the dominion, the authority, and the glory of the nations to Satan. That's the verse that shows you right there, and Jesus didn't say, oh, no, 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 no. And the devil had the audacity to say, because they're mine, if you'll fall down and worship me as God, I'll give them to you. You know why Jesus didn't do it? You know why Jesus didn't dispute it? Because it's a true fact. He does have them. But the reason why Jesus didn't bother bowing down or didn't argue with him is because Jesus has an authority. And the authority is the word of God which says in Revelation chapter 19 that Jesus Christ is going to get them when God comes back. You need the devil to give them to him. <clears throat> He's going to get them. Now, Satan is in charge of this present world, including all the governments. Now, take your Bible and turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. And I'll show it to you again. I want to pick it up in verse 12. Now watch the structure of this authority. And this is written to the church, me and you. Here's what he says. <clears throat> A familiar passage, you just never put it in the right context to understand it in the light of Romans chapter 13. Well, that's what we're doing today. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Watch it. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, here it comes, but against principalities, that'll be the devil. Against power, that'll be the governments. Against the rulers of darkness of this world, that'll be demonic hordes, the unclean spirits. And spiritual wickedness in high places, there is the demonic activity within governments and also in within religion. 
That's the authority structure of how it comes down. And the Bible says that you need to understand that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. It isn't the nations that you have to fear. It is the one who is behind those nations trying to accomplish his agenda. So the top authority structure is God. Then God divides his authority out right now two ways. He gives the governments on this earth to the devil. Because we're in the times of the Gentiles. But he gives the authority and the structure of the church to Jesus Christ. Your job and my job is to understand that you and I, as Christians, are in this Satan-controlled government. We're in it, but we're no longer part of it. Now we're an ambassador. Now we, our citizenship is up there. Now, don't misunderstand me. I still got a passport that says I'm a citizen of the United States. And if I would travel to a foreign country, waving a Bible in front of their face and says, well, I'm a citizen of heaven, they're going to get you thrown in jail. You still have to give them your passport because you still live here. And that's part of Romans chapter 13 that I understand that I'm in this country. I'm part of this country. Yes, I pay taxes. I have to obey the laws like everybody else. But I understand that the bottom line is, spiritually speaking, I'm in this world, but I'm not of it anymore. That's why I don't have to get caught up in the Republicans and the Democrats. As a Christian, the moment you take a side and you say, well, I'm a Republican, then you can't win any Democrats to Christ. The moment you say, well, I'm a Democrat, then you've lost your ministry Republicans. Your only position is to stand in the middle and say, I'm neither one of you because you're all dying and going to hell and come to Christ. It's the only choice you got if you're an ambassador. Now, did you ever notice in the Old Testament, maybe you never saw this. In the Old Testament, he's talking about the devil in Ezekiel chapter 31. And he's talking specifically about the devil in, chap- in Ezekiel chapter 31. But you know what he calls the devil? He calls him Pharaoh. In Isaiah chapter 10, he's talking about the devil. But you know what he calls the devil? He calls him the Assyrian. That'd be Shennacherib. In Ezekiel chapter 28, he's talking about the devil, and he calls the devil the prince of Tyrus. In Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, he's talking about the devil, and he calls the devil the prince of Persia. Why is that? Why in the Old Testament does God take the devil, when he's talking about the devil, put in the name of a Gentile king? You know why? Because that's the nation that the devil is working through at that time, and God didn't want you to miss that. You gotta have a final authority, ladies and gentlemen, and you gotta know how to use it. Everything good or bad operates under God's operation. Now, here's another great verse for you. You don't have to turn to it, but you want to write this down. You know what it says? It says that God is the Father of all spirits. Now, that would be good spirits and unclean spirits. James chapter 2 verse 19 says, Thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. Why? Because the devils also believe and tremble. You see, the devil may have the world, and he may be in charge, but he can't do one thing that God doesn't permit him to do. Boy, is this going to reform our thinking on what's wrong and what's right in this country? Last election, we had a real dilemma, who to vote for. And Christians struggled. A lot of Christians didn't vote for anybody. We had uh, McCain, who was a conservative and a Republican. And we had Barack Obama, who was a very liberal and he's a Democrat. 
And people who looked at it, well, well, you know, vote for, vote for, uh, vote for the one that, uh, you know, is, 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 is Christian or stands for Christian principles. Now, I'm not criticizing how you vote because that's your, and everybody's got to vote their own conscience. And this is probably just me. But if I really want Christ to come back, and I really can't wait to see him, why would I vote for somebody who's going to prolong it? Vote for the guy that's going to get it on. Now, I'm not saying you should have voted. I mean, now the, the downside of that is this, knowing what we know, that you could have put John McCain in and we could have got to heaven faster than Barack Obama, see? Because you can't trust either one. Hey, until the Lord comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords and sits on the throne, you ain't safe with anybody. But you've got to have a perspective. You know, in the book of Job, chapter 1, you ever see that? There's a great example for you. Devil walks into the throne room up there with all the audacity, and the Lord says, have you considered my servant Job? And the devil says, yeah, he ain't much. God says, he loved me with all of his heart, mind, and soul. And the devil says, well, why wouldn't he? Look at all the stuff he got. Why, well, he's got Ben Cartwright and a Ponderosa beat with all the land you give him. The devil, God says, you mean you telling me he just loved me because all I gave him? devil said, absolutely. devil said, you're wrong. Or God said, you're wrong. devil said, no, I'm not. I'll tell you what. You take everything he's got and take it from him, and he'll curse it to his face. God said, he will not. devil said, he would. God said, he won't. Will, won't, will, won't, will. <laughs> Finally, God said, okay, do it. Take everything he's got. Could you just see the glow in the, in the devil's eye? devil hated Job. Because Job was a man who, who feared God and eschewed evil. Eschewed is an old English word. It means eschewed. <laughs> we find that in the translation of the Hebrew, have your feet eschewed with the gospel of peace. I don't think that's the same way it works. Eschewed means he hated. He hated evil. And boy, once the devil got that word that he could take all that Job had, he's on his way out the door, and just as he gets to the throne, he's got all kinds of things going on in his mind he's going to do to Job. And just as he gets his hand on the throne door to go out, the God says, oh, by the way, you can take all that he had, but don't touch his body. You realize when God put that parameter in there, the devil couldn't touch Job if he wanted to. The devil would have had a million, billion, zillion, billion hordes of demonic forces behind him, and he still couldn't touch his body because God says, there's the line, do not cross it. Amen. Now, you know chapter 2. The devil comes back in again. And this time, Job's really having some problems because he lost everything. But the devil's not done with him. So they have their conversation again. <clears throat> And this time, the God says, he says, he loves me. The devil says, uh, you touch his body, and he'll curse you to his face. And they went through the little thing again. Finally, he says, all right. The Lord says, uh, touch his body. I, you can just see the devil. I mean, he's salivating, man. Oh, I'm going to get him now. And he's walking down there, and just as he got his hand, he heard that big booming voice that said, oh, by the way, you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. The devil could have stayed up all night with all the hordes of hell and everybody that he ever wanted to do, and he could not step over the line that God did. You've got to get your perspective. The devil may be in charge of the nations. He may be in charge of governments. But within that, he can't do one thing outside of what God said. You need to understand that. 
You need to realize that this thing, when the Bible says that there's no power of God, all powers are ordained of God, he's telling you that the devil may have this whole, whole concept in the world, but the devil has it uh, under God's authority. That you know what that tells me? That tells me that God is using the devil for one purpose. The devil is using you, God is using you and me through Christ, his one authority, to win people to Christ and to establish a church. He's using the devil through the nations to set up the nations for the second coming of Christ, and the devil doesn't even know it. Oops, I just told him. And the devil doesn't even know it. God's people are so off the beam on things like this. What are you worrying about what's going on in the world? Everything that's happening is happening for one reason, ladies and gentlemen. You are at the end of life on planet Earth by a very short measure. Now, I know, I know when you start talking like this, I'm going to close my eyes because the sick feeling on your face when I start talking about the Lord coming back gives you away. But everything good or bad operates under God's authority. I tell you all the time, you have a front row seat to the end of the world. What are you missing that for? I talked to the people the other. I, I talked to the people yesterday, the ladies yesterday, and I talked about how that they uh, uh, that the uh, you know that the, you need to get on the inside of ministry. That most churches, people are on the outside of ministry. They don't have a clue what's going on. That's why you don't know who got saved, or you don't know what happened in people's lives. You need to get on the inside of ministry. What I'm telling you, in the same respect that you and I have, you need to get on the inside of history and see what's going on to get the right perspective. It's incredible. Once you see and understand God really in charge, and nothing happens without God letting it happen, it changes your whole outlook on government, United States, and the world. Now, God has set two systems in play. He has set the governmental structure run by the devil. Devil cannot step one inch outside of what God allows him to do. Then he sets the spiritual side through his son, which is the church. And through Christ, the church is to call out a body of believers to, to, uh, uh, to, uh, to make the bride of Christ. God has the nations then uh, through the devil to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ and the established nation of Israel. Do you know why there's a devil? I mean, do you think that the devil, you know, we get the idea sometimes that, that God's up there in heaven, you know, and he sits on the throne and he's kind of watching, watches the world on big screen TVs. And he's sitting up there and he's watching all around the world, you know, like a big old grandfather up there. And, and then suddenly, uh, you know, somebody runs in and he says, your majesty, oh God, your majesty, you ain't going to believe this. The devil just did this. And God says, oh, now what am I going to do? We get the idea that, that God goes through life like we do from disaster to disaster. God is totally in charge of everything that goes on, and it's all part of God's plan. The Bible tells you in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 4, that the Lord hath made all, now listen to this, the Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of judgment. That tells me right there that God created the devil for his own purpose. And you know what that purpose is? The day of judgment. You know what that day is? Second coming of Christ. The devil's out there running around thinking he's going to stop the world. And God says, go ahead and do your little thing. You got a little string on? Go ahead there. Uh, like, a, like walking your dog, one of them long elastic things. 
I love those. <clears throat> the dog can get out as far as you want. You can just stand there and he can go wherever he wants. And, and then you know what? And then if your dog's been mean that day, then you can always get even with him. He thinks he can run out nine feet. You put that little lock on it, he gets four. <laughs> pull him back. <laughs> you see, the dog gets used to having that 20-foot tether. He runs out, comes back, runs out, comes back. He gets used to it. But when you want to show who's, in, who's the boss, you know what you do? You just put the lock on. I've been places where there's a cat over there, and my dog sees it behind over there, you know, in the bush. And he, there's enough line on it that he can get to it. And he knows that. My dogs have two things. Your dog probably does too. I don't know how they have them. I don't know where they have them. But they got two things. First of all, they got to watch because they always know what time it is to eat. And they know what time I should be up. Second thing, they got a little measuring stick someplace because they always know how long that tether goes. And he knows he can get that cat because he's got enough line on this. But I'm, I'm in charge, and I don't want him to kill the cat. So what I do is I lock the thing down. He's only got three feet. Now, he's so stupid, he doesn't know it. So he goes after that cat full force, and when he hits the end of that thing, I'm prepared because I know what he's going to do. So I get myself, because this dog weighs 100 pounds. So I get this thing braced here. He goes out there, and the next thing I know, it pulls him right on his back. He's down there in the thing, and he can't get, get the cat. That's what God does with the devil. He's got him on a leash. He's got him on a leash. He got him on one of those long leashes like you take your dog for a walk, and there's times that he'll let him get all the way out of the end of that. And the devil's saying, oh, look at me, look what I can do. And he gets so used to being able to do that that he forgets that the one that's powerful in him still has the control leash. So he'll run out here to do something to you, and God will put that thing, lock that thing down, and he'll just bust his neck. God's in control. That's why the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than it's in the world. That's why the Bible says, first perfect love casteth out fear. The key word is authority. Authority for you and for me. Authority against the devil and his crowd. Perspective. I said, you got a front row seat to the end of the world. You're living in the, you're living in the last moments of the last minutes of the last seconds of the last of the end of time. And yet, because we don't have perspective, we're living our lives like we're going to be here and live to be 80, 90, and live for 200 years. And again, I know when you start talking about this, you get that real sick pit down in your stomach, you know. Okay, let's sing a song here. This, this, I got a favorite song in the Eagle. I'm going to like this one. Let me find it here. Oh, here it is. Right now, I opened it to it. Here we go. My Jesus, I love thee, but don't come back right now. I've got some great things happening, so come back in a while. That's us. That's us. Where we're at. Jenny, do not put this tape on the internet because when people hear it, I do not want to be bombarded by a million people to go on American Idol. I am famous enough. When you get the right perspective, ladies and gentlemen, you can better understand what he's saying in verse 1 when he says all powers are of God. All powers come from God, but for his purpose. And the devil has to work within that confine. Once you understand that, you don't have to be afraid of anything because, wow, what new life that gives the Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for them that love God who are called according to his purpose. 
When you grasp the reality, get the perspective of what I'm saying, what are you afraid of in this world? What can happen to you that can befall you that once you get this, that you understand that God's not the author of it and in charge of it? Hey, Job didn't like what he went through. And if you would have talked to Job while he was on the ash heap and you would have asked him, he was in deep misery. But the Bible says after it was all over, he was twice as good as he was before. You see, what we don't want to happen, because this is where we're at as American Christians, what we don't want to happen, well, we want Jesus to come back. We just don't want to go through any discomfort for it to happen. We'd have our way. We'd just go to bed tonight and pull them covers up around us and just go into a deep sleep, and then Jesus would just come in the middle of the night. No heartache, no tribulation for us to go through as far as pre-tribulation stuff. Oh, it would just happen and it would all be so nice. It ain't going to happen that way. There's probably a price that you and I are going to have to pay before that comes. At least I hope so. Verse 2 says, Whosoever, therefore, because of what he just said in verse 1, resisteth the powers, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now let me explain what this means. There's two kinds of damnation in the Bible. I touched on this last week. There's a damnation of an unsaved person who dies and goes to hell. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, where it says, How shall ye escape the damnation of hell? See, that's for an unsaved person. So that's your first kind of damnation in the Bible. Then there's a damnation for a Christian that has nothing to do with your soul, but has to do with the damnation of your body. Now we find that over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29, talking about the Lord's Supper. Remember that? where he said, if you take the Lord's Supper unworthily, in other words, without unconfessed, with unconfessed sin, without judging yourself, the Bible says, he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, Lord's Supper, eateth and drinketh to himself, damnation. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to go to hell if you're a Christian. It means damnation to your flesh. In fact, in the next verse, he shows you the three types of damnation. Somebody's weak, somebody's sick, and somebody has physically died. So you need to understand that there's two kinds of damnation. But the Bible says that if you resist the power, there comes a damnation with it. I want to give you a great example. Now, most of you were not alive during the Vietnam War. Uh, and contrary to belief, uh, I was not alive in World War I. But the Vietnam War was my war, as it were some of you older guys. The Vietnam War was a very popular, un- a very unpopular war. It was a time when probably this country, as far as patriotism, had gotten to the lowest level that it had ever been. There's some reason for that. You know, uh, we lost, uh, we won World War, uh, we won World War II. We won World War I and we won World War II. When we went to Korea in 1950, 51, uh, that was a stalemate. We didn't win, we didn't lose. They draw a line at the 38th Paravel called a ceasefire and the war was never over. In fact, that Ceasefire is still in effect, and there's been no end to that war. That's why we keep so many troops on Korea on the 39th parallel. When Vietnam came along in the early 60s, we took it over from the French. America was not ready for another war. America didn't want a war. This war was very unpopular because it was not our war. We were trying to stop the 
the uh, communists from coming into Indochina and taking over the world. It already, it already fell in Europe, Hungary, Czechoslovakia. I mean, uh, uh, the countries in Europe were falling like dominoes and around the world. And we felt like we had to stop communism because they were going to go into Indochina just like they went into Korea. And we basically got suckered into doing in Vietnam what we got suckered into doing in Korea, go fight somebody else's war. Very unpopular. Add to that, we had the... Uh, uh, we had the uh, uh, we had the hippie movement coming on now, the flower child type thing, you know, and you don't know who hippies are anymore, but they were around when I was there. And uh, they were the they were the people who were against war, peace, love, peace, you know, were the big. They were anti-establishment. What they were, they let their hair grow long because everybody had short hair. They wore they never took a bath because everybody else did. They wore goofy-looking clothes because everybody looked normal. In other words, everything that they did, they tried to step aside from the mainstream of society and say, look at me, I'm different. I'm against the establishment, you see. And it was mostly in the colleges and universities. When I was in the Army, it was right at the time, and most of you don't remember this, that the Kate, 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 Kent State Massacre, Kent State, Ohio. And uh, if, if you know anything about that, you know what happened. Kent State University was a state university in Ohio. I spent one semester at, at Kent State and then, you know, decided it wasn't for me. But on the college campuses, this is where, and this is where it always happens, this is where all the dissidents were forming. Starts out in California with Berkeley and those places, and this is where all the anarchy begins to form up and shape up. And it spread through all of the, all the different, uh, all the different uh, uh, universities. And at Kent State, they were rioting against the war in Vietnam. And now, they weren't just out with a little sign. They were burning down buildings. Burning dormitories, turning over cars, setting them on fire. They were doing some heavy damage. Well, the National Guard was called in to protect it. And they'd stand there with their flak vests on, with their M1 rifles out there, you know, and the flower children would come down and put little flowers in the barrel of their guns. Peace, peace, peace. I never got to do any of those, but I was wanted to be. I'd, I'd slip a real round in that thing. About the time he put his finger on that barrel, I'd just pull that thing off and say, whoops. Excuse me, I'll get them for you. <clears throat> Well, at Kent State University, they, they had a riot. And the National Guard guys were being pelted with rocks, beer bottles, just all kinds of stuff. And they, were, they, they had retreated because they were greatly outnumbered. And they retreated uh, to up to a little mound up there where they would try to hold them off. And, and you know, and all they had was rifles and bayonets and tear gas. When they were throwing rocks, they were throwing everything at them. And, and in a melee, when they started to get, they, they started to get attacked, uh, some of the uh, National Guard guys turned into the crowd and fired. Killed what? Five or six of them. Oh, boy. That was it, man. The riots were off. I was stationed at Fort Devens, Massachusetts at that time. And I was stationed up there, and uh, they, they surrounded our fort. And they had all kinds of stuff out there, and they had all kinds of things going. And, uh, and they're not too smart. I was tensioned, when I was stationed in the 10th, uh, in uh, Fort Devon with the 10th group, uh, they had up there what was called the ASA, which was the Army Security Agency, kind of a side thing of the CIA. And these guys were so stupid. Uh, they're out there chanting and having their rallies, you know, and, and they had actually took mil- mil- our guys, dressed them up like hippies. They couldn't tell them apart. And they infiltrated it and knew every plan they were going to do. And they knew that they were going to come in, they're going to crash the, the south gate, which was the weakest gate. So the commander, you know, he was an old World War II guy, and uh, he, 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 didn't, he didn't think too much of hippies. He got about 200 Green Berets and gave them nightsticks, and they were waiting around the, 
the thing here and let them come through that gate. And when those hippies come through that gate with their signs, he turned those 200 guys, 100 on each flank, and boy, they, would, and they just beat the fire out of those guys, man. I tell you, it was, it was great to see. Move my heart. But anyway. <laughs> all across this country. And it was because of the war. And this whole country got inflamed. They put the guys on trial. I mean, that's how bad it was. And of course, the, the whole concept, the reality of that is this. The Vietnam was an immoral war. But every war is immoral. Wasn't it just Vietnam War? Now, how do you, as a citizen of this country, and here's a great lesson for you, how do you deal with a situation like this? Say you lived back in the 60s and the 70s, and back then they had a draft. And you got drafted into the Army, and if you got drafted, you were going to Vietnam. Bravo to 11. You were on your way. And uh, they took these guys and put them in the Army, and uh, they went over there, you know, and we've all seen movies about it and stories about it. And uh, a lot of people went to Canada. Canada was a sanctuary. We called them draft dodgers. There were people burning their draft cards. And they went to Canada because Canada would let them in. They didn't have to serve in the military. That was the big thing with Clinton later on. You know what Clinton did? Who was a draft dodger, by the way, himself. He put amnesty to bring them all back, see? And it was a very unpopular war. Now, the principle is this. The principle is this. It's not your job, based on what I'm just telling you, it's not your job or my job to judge if a war is moral or immoral. It's your job to obey your country and go fight for your country in that war. And we already know that God judges nations like he does individuals. He'll hold the country accountable if it was an immoral war, and he'll bless you for obeying your country. That's how it works. That's how it works. If I was a saved person and I had to go into a war today and I didn't think the war was right or I was against the war, I didn't want to go into war, I'd obey my country and i get my perspective. You know what it would be? I'm a saved man. I have a Bible. I believe the Bible. God is sending me someplace. Wow, the government is sending to be a missionary and they're going to pay my whole expenses for it. what I do. But that only if you have the right perspective, see? You've got to have the right perspective. He says, whoso therefore resisteth the powers, resisteth the ordinance. Now, what well, you know what the damnation of that thing was? Because this country allowed that to happen? Because this country embraced those kind of things? You know why this country's in the mess that we're in right now? Because the same guys that were the hippies back there in the 60s and the 70s are the same guys that are in Congress and President and, and all right now, see? See how that thing comes back to haunt you? We're having what we have in this country today of the liberal movement because of the liberal movement that this country embraced in the 60s. Except the hippies back then that were smoking dope, they, weren't the, uh, they, weren't, uh, they were, didn't have any power. Now they've grown up, they went to those colleges and universities, they got their degree, they got into politics, and now they are the leaders of our country. Why well, that's where it is. You're not going to change it. Man, get your big old thing of popcorn, a couple of things of pop, and sit down and watch this thing self-destruct. I think it's great. The last president we had that was a military president was George Bush, the senior. We won't have any more because they're all dead or they're dying. You'll see a distinct mark in our country in the downfall after George Bush uh, the first. And I'm not saying he was a great president, but I am saying he was a World War II torpedo squadron uh, flyer and fought in World War II. He had a perspective. It's hard. How can you be a commander-in-chief of all the military? You've never been in the military. I mean, I, I'm asking. I don't know. What, do you go to school to learn that? Or maybe you get one of those Nintendos. And, oh, man, battle cry. 
You know, I found that most of the issues that Christians get upset about are not really issues at all. They just don't have any perspective. And we waste so much time worrying and fighting and fussing over things that really don't mean any deal. I remember back in 1962, all the churches were in an uproar. The Supreme Court banned prayer in schools. Now, I'm the first one to understand that I think a nation reverence to God and understanding to God is a good thing. But at the end of the day, if you really knew your Bible, didn't you know that someday prayer was going to be banned in school if it was going to come to the end someday? You know why I don't care about prayer in school? I could care less. Both of my kids went to, went to public school, never went to Christian school a day in their life. You know why? Because I'm not worried about prayer in school. You know what the real issue is? No prayer in homes. That's the real issue. God's people get it all backwards. You're so upset about the fact that they're not going to pray in school, but most moms and dads won't take 15 minutes a day to get on their knees with their kid and pray for them, with them, about what's going on in life in their world. Well, boy, we're upset about prayer in schools, aren't we? See how we get it backwards? Let me tell you something. They say, you can't pray in school. Really? Wow. How do you stop that? Oh, you mean you can't? Oh, okay. I didn't know that was praying. I thought it was praying was just you talking to God whenever you want to. Somebody says, you can't pray in this country. Watch me. <laughs> I'd go to a Chiefs football game. and then a, Well, you wouldn't hear a roar crowd at the foot Chiefs game. But anyway, I'd go to some great football game. Go to some KU game. Some Missouri game. I'm sorry. Hey, uh, my wife couldn't find your phone number the other night. She was going to call you. Sorry. It's okay. All right. She had a cake, an MU cake for you, you know, and when you took a piece of it underneath, the, it was beautiful, beautiful cake, but when you took off the first piece, it said KU underneath the side of it. You're going to love it. <laughs> Either one, they're both great teams. Bottom line is this. You know what? You can't stop you from praying. Somebody says, why? Well, we're going to ban all the Bibles. Oh, I don't really want you to do that because I got 50 years of notes, but if a push comes to shove and you take all the Bibles, I guess it's okay because thy word have I hid in my heart that I may not sin against thee. I'll walk around with the book of Eli. <laughs> Be the book of Bob. Somebody says, well, I think it's terrible that they won't have Bible studies after hours at school. You got a park nearby in the summertime? Go have it there. Go to somebody's house. Nothing, nothing that we get upset about. My point is this. We get upset about things that you think the government stops you from doing with God. Nobody stops you from doing anything. You know who stops you from doing anything with God? You. But we like to blame it on everything else and everybody else because that's the way we are. Well, I can't witness because of my job. Really? They won't let me witness at work. Really? Boy, the people in Russia, communist Russia, they found a way to do it. People in red China where you get your head cut off for witnessing, they found a way to do it. People in Cuba that got hung up and strung up and skinned alive, if they did it, they found a way to do it. Why is it that we can't find a way to do it? We're all backwards. I mean, as simple as that. I mean, uh, 
I, I look at this abortion issue. And, uh, you know, the government passes the rule, a law that, uh, that uh, abortions are illegal. And God's people just go ballistic. Now, let me just tell you something. My personal view on abortion is simply this. I think it's ungodly. I think it's sin. I think it's going to bring down God's judgment on a nation. I think it's because of a nation have, have, have went away from God. I think the taking of an unborn life out of a womb and killing it because you want to have a good time and you don't want the consequences, you want to go out and have another one, I think it is a blight on society and this country. That's my personal position on it. But you know what bothers me about some of God's people who take such a stand for it and would rally for it? You go down the street and you see churches with 3,000 little white crosses in there on their front lawn, and they put a little sign there. This is for the 3,000 babies that were aborted in Kansas City. It's a terrible thing, but you know what bothers me? You know why I have no more respect for you than I do the abortion people? It's because you'll march for abortion and you do all the things, but you wouldn't walk across the street to win somebody to Christ that's dying and going to hell. You're big on the abortion issue, but you just let the spiritual babies die and go to hell. You let the young people out there that you ought to be witnessing to. I'm telling you, we got it all backwards. We got it completely backwards. Let me ask you a question. I'm not saying this is true, but let me ask you a question. What if God has to allow abortion and put up with abortion? Because that's the only way he can get those little babies into heaven because he knows you and I are going to drop the ball and not win them to Christ. You say, what well, God wouldn't do that. You don't know very much about God, do you? You don't get out much, do you? Because you live in America and you're right here and you're all cozy. You look at something like abortion and you say, well, God wouldn't do that. Really? How do you think he got all the babies in Genesis chapter 6 into heaven when the world was all wicked? He drowned the babies. When Sodom and Gomorrah happened and the whole place got burned up because of his wickedness, how do you think God balanced it out and by getting people into heaven out of there, the babies burned, but they went to heaven. You don't know very much about God, do you? I mean, do you think when the dry bomb at Hiroshima dropped in a godless country that didn't have a God, their God was in a, an emperor in Tokyo someplace, you think God doesn't have a balancing out to get people in heaven that they would never get to heaven? Because we failed a job. You know, at the end of World War II, MacArthur went into Japan. And he was the provost marshal and the governmental guy who his task was rebuilding Japan. President Truman said, what do you need? Tell me what you need and we'll get it to you. You know what MacArthur asked for? He said, send me 10,000 missionaries. What did he ask for? You know what he got? He got Benny Goodman. He got baseball. He got hot dogs. He got the boogie-woogie bugle boy from Company C. He got all the things that the world had, but they never got the missionaries. Let me tell you something. You really believe that statement that God wouldn't do something like that? You need to get on your knees for about four hours and pray over Isaiah 57 verses 1 and 2. You'd be surprised what God allows. I'll tell you something, man, and I'll tell you, this is why I told you guys in our meetings. Next year, look for somebody that God will put in your life that you can minister to and help get come to Christ. And I gave you great examples of people who know far less than you do who God uses. It's never about your circumstances. It's always about your perspective. God will use you wherever you're at. God will use you wherever you're at. And you know what? We all have dry periods in our life. 
And I know if you're a young Christian here, and, and I'm not saying you ought to be able to, but I'm saying as you go through these levels, we all have dry periods in life. But let me, can I just be honest? If you've went five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, and you've not won somebody to Christ in some way or some fashion, can I be honest? I would get alone someplace and check out what might be wrong. And you know what the tragedy is? When you go through those times in your life, you don't even know where to go in the Bible. When you go through a time like that, that you pray and claim for God. There's all kinds of, there's one great model in the Bible. When you get into a dry period in your life and you're not winning people to Christ and it begins to bother you, ah, I think I just solved my problem. Maybe that's the key. Maybe it just doesn't bother us. There's a place which you can go in the Bible and you can get on your knees and get a hold of God and you can cry that prayer till God answers it. You don't even know where it's at. But I bet you got your abortion banner all filled out, don't you? I bet you got your Christian school banner and you got all your, all your political things lined up, don't you? You'd be surprised what God would do when you and I don't do the job. We got no perspective. We live in America where the, your biggest decision is you're going to a store, you got 600 colors of lip shade you got to choose from. Our biggest decision is when I go and buy a pair of shoes, my God, there's 600 pair here. That's our big dilemma. Our big dilemma is when we go someplace into a restaurant, the menu is endless. So we get all those things in our life, and then we come to a church, any church, that is an authority structure that has, and you, you, you're so used to picking what you want off the menu. Oh, don't tell me about it. I know exactly where it starts. I've been there. The rule of thumb is the longer you're saved, the harder it is to win somebody to Christ. The harder it is to keep that burden. The, the longer we're saved, the harder it gets. You know why? Because you become calloused. You become professional. You young Christians that just got saved, you haven't learned how to be deceptive with God yet. We'll have a class on that down the line. How to deceive God and keep your testimony. How to deceive God and still look good. You haven't learned to do that yet. You're still innocent and honest. You still just believe what God says and you want to do it and you, you're burdened by the little things in your life that, that you just can't deal with yet and you, you want them out of your life. You haven't learned to be professional yet. You haven't got Baptist slick yet. You haven't got to the place where you learn how to use the system and still look good. You haven't got to the place where you don't have to be in the Bible at all and yet you can still put off the air of being what God wants you to be. All except in the area of the Holy Spirit of God using you to touch somebody else's life. Hey, let me tell you something. I don't have time to get into this this morning. If you know anything about the, I told you about the times of the Gentiles. There's another concept in there called the fullness of the Gentiles. And God is going to get that filled with you or without you. But he's going to get it done. God wouldn't do that. You're an idiot. I just don't believe God would do that. No, you don't believe God would do anything. I don't believe God would do that. No, you wouldn't believe that because God's not doing anything with you. 
You hope that God is not true. Boy, you know something? And I'm not saying he is, but I'm just saying this as an example. Wouldn't you hate to get to the judgment seat of Christ when you marched on all the abortions and took a stand on it, preached a thousand sermons on it, passed out track, gave money to it, got on board with everything? Hey, you know the guy that killed the abortion guy last week? What was his name? He killed Tiller. His name was, uh, what was it? Lee Harvey, what? <laughs> Who was it? Boy, boy, did that end well? I'm happy for that. He's going to play the part. Well, I just had to kill him because it's against God in the Bible, and I was just moved that, and I had to kill him. Boy, the jury saw through that. What was it? 20 minutes in deliberation? First-degree murder. 37 minutes? First-degree murder. Amen, buddy. Amen. Amen. It's never wrong to take a life. I don't care who it is unless he's breaking down your back door. And then I'd, I'd say, hey, you know what? Enter into the kingdom of the joy of thy Lord. <laughs> There's a model for everything, folks, even when we go through the dry spells in life. But I'd hate to get to the judgment seat of Christ and find out that all of this thing about abortion, all of this thing about the things we were so fired up was, was all because of the fact that you and I failed to do our job. Let me stop. I can't fathom a child of God going through their Christian life and never having an impact on one person's life. I just can't. I don't know even where to begin. I don't know how you can even look yourself in the mirror in the morning. I'm not a great soul winner. I'm really not. But boy, I'll tell you what, when I, don't, when I go through a dry period in my life, I know where to hit my knees and I know where to go in that book to get out of the dry spell. I can't believe you've been saved 5, 10, 15 years, you don't know where that spot's at. That bothers me. It bothers me a lot. I'll tell you. This is why I want you to have, this is the things we're going to change. These are the goals that you now got to have in your life. Let God use you. You see, once you see God always in charge, and whatever happens, good or bad, is by his hand and his power, boy, it changes your whole perspective. I'm not saying the thing about abortion is what he's doing, but I'm saying this, you need to understand what God has done down through history. You need to understand that your responsibility and my responsibility is the fruit of the righteous, is as a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise, winning people to Christ bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the truth of the matter is, some of you get mad about what I said this morning, and you'll carry it out of here, and you'll walk about it and talk about it with your wife or your friends at lunch someplace, and you'll get mad and gruffle about it, and the bottom line is you missed the whole point. You're more angry at what I said, and you still don't have any burden for lost people. When's the last time you wet your pillow with tears over somebody lost, dying, and going to hell? When's the last time you wrote down in your, why did I have to tell you to start a journal to put down people who are lost and pray for them? Some things to me just seem like they ought to be there. I don't know. Now, once you see God's and always in charge, the truth of the matter is most of the things that go on in this world, once you realize that, they don't affect you and me, good or bad. I've seen down through history one thing. Any nation, no matter how worldly, how wicked, or how bad they were, they ever stopped God's work or God's man. And I'm telling you, I mean, there's some great examples of that in the Bible. How about Joseph? Through no fault of his own, all he wanted to do is, is, is love God, and he was the apple of his father's eye. And his brethren got envious and sold him into slavery. And he goes into Egypt. He's falsely accused by Potter's wife, and he wounds up in jail. 
Here he is, God's man, and the most wicked, vile nation at this time that is being run by the devil. And what does God do? God puts the right people in his world to get him right where God wants him to be. In every circumstance in life, ladies and gentlemen, your perspective comes in two formats, long-term and short-term. Short-term, God got him down into Egypt. Long-term was to get the nation of down there sometime later, forging for 400 years and send them back out as a strong nation. And he used Joseph and a wicked nation to do it. A nation that hated God, a nation that had nothing to say about God that was good, a nation that had 6,000 gods of themselves, Yet Joseph has perspective, and it says in Genesis chapter 39, verse 2, right in the middle of this whole mess, and the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was worth Joseph. No matter what this world tried to do to you, you got to get the perspective that you're here short-term to let it roll because long-term, God's going to do something with it. You've got to hang on to the great principle that God was with Joseph. Joseph had perspective. He had understanding. After it was all said and done and his brethren are coming up and they're apologizing and they're saying, oh, I'm so sorry. We were so wrong. We did all these terrible things to you. Joseph saw the short-term and the long-term. And as I tell you guys all the time, Joseph never took it personal because he always saw that whatever he was going through and whatever persecution he was getting, it was because God was using him. And he said in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, boy, I've quoted this thing many times, but as for you, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. Watch it. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Are you willing to go through some tough time in your life so God will put you in a position to be able to win somebody to Christ? Are you, are you willing to go through this world, let it do to you what it wants to do? If God's going to bring this world to an end and God's going to, it's times are going to get rough. Are you willing to go through those rough times and lose what you've got to lose, give up what you've got to give up because you see the short term versus the long term? Or are you more concerned about our comfort? I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. How about Daniel and Daniel chapter 1? Daniel chapter 1, here's another example. Daniel was, Daniel was required to take of all the filth of Babylon. And the Bible says that Daniel's of the king's seed. He's in the line of Christ. And you know what the devil wanted to do, didn't you? The devil put him down there in Babylon because the devil knows that he's in the line of Christ and the devil wants to destroy that seed by mixing it with the filth of Babylon. Ah, but what does it say that Daniel did when he saw what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to do? When he understood the vileness, but he understood who he was with God. What did Daniel do? He did the same thing that you and I should do when we're faced with a a decision that's going to turn away from God or let the world use you. He looked inside himself and his Bible says, and Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not define himself with the king's meat. Then you know what God did? God put him two men in his lives. The, the Melkar, uh, who was the guy that worked under the eunuch, and the prince who was the prince of the eunuchs. You know what God did? There was a law. And the law was, you got to eat this stuff and take this filth and worship the gods of Babylon. 
Now, here's a case where Daniel didn't obey the law. He still worshiped God, and he got out of it what God wanted him to do. But what did God, how did God do it? God took two men in his life that he went to and said, hey, look, I know the end result you want. You let me do it my way, and I'll make you really, really popular with the king. You know what the Bible calls that? Wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. It's using the world system against itself because you have perspective and understanding and the principles. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves, and sometimes six serpents to two doves, but nevertheless. And you know what happened. At the end of 30 days or whatever the time period was, they brought him back, and the Bible says that the Hebrew children were 10 times better. God gave him away in a wicked nation to get past all of the laws without breaking them. Oh, but you've got to be smart enough and have the principles involved to understand it. Now, I'll show you another one. What happens when you get busted? What happens when you can't get around the laws? Now, here's a good story in Daniel chapter 3. The three Hebrew children. <clears throat> Verse 13 says, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king, like he's somebody. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto the men, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you do, you do, uh, do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if ye be ready at, that, at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, psaltery, and the dulcimer, that all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made. Well, but if you worship not, ye shall be cast that same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that may shall deliver you out of my hands? Oh, I know who he is. And so did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at verse 16. Here it comes. My kind of man. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, stick it in your ear. <laughs> we are not careful to answer you in this matter. You know what that means in the old English? Put it, in the, put it in the vernacular. We don't give a flip what you think. When it says we're not careful, it means I'm not going to think about how I word this. Read my lips. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto you, fat belly. Be it known for you, you sluggard. Be it known for you, you idiot stick. Be it known for you, you jerk. O king, we will not serve thy God, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Wow. No way around that. And there may come a time in your life when there is no way around that. So what do you do? Put your tail between your legs and run out the door? What do you do? Fall down and worship? The, all the world of God? No, no. They went into the fire. You know what they knew? They knew what we don't know. They put him in that fire down there, boy, and that thing was so hot. They throwed him in that fire, and the king put him in there, and they're burning in there, and they're in there. And the king, after a while, he says, well, I guess we showed them. And uh, he, he said, yeah, let's take a look and see the burning cinders of these guys who wouldn't worship me. And he opened the door, and then he said, hey, king, you need to see this. They're walking around here going, oh, man, I'm freezing in here. And the king looks down, and he says, whoa. I see, a, I see three men, but now there's a fourth one. And the fourth one 
liken unto the Son of God. It's all right to go into the furnace when God goes with you. There's an old sermon. It's a song now, but it was a sermon way, way, way back. Great sermon about the three Hebrew children. And it's a song you probably all know, little kids singing all the time. But it was a great sermon when I heard it many, many, many years ago. It simply says this. They didn't bend, they didn't bow, and they didn't burn. You don't have to be afraid of this world. Who can't do a thing to you that God doesn't let it do. And if they do do it, then God's going to get you through it. That's why when you read Fox's Book of Martyrs back there, you find some of them Christians that are tortured to death, burned in the Inquisition. They put them up there and they're going to burn them, going to torture them. You know how they go out? They go out singing songs unto God. I wonder how we go out. I wonder some Sunday morning if they <clears throat> broke in the back doors here and the, and the whole world turned upside down and they, they, they lined everybody up and they put it around here and a guy come up with a nine millimeter pistol and put it to your forehead and he said, deny Jesus Christ. And you say, uh, no, I'm not going to do it. And he squeezes off around and blood, brains, and cat tissue goes all over the next 10 people down there. By the time they get to you and me, we'd probably be babbling like we were lost our minds. So what happens when you get busted? Daniel chapter 6. Now here's the story that Daniel <clears throat> is doing well. But the people hate him. They hate him because he's in a world system that hates God. And he represents God. Much like you're going to find yourself in life. Yet Daniel has God's favor. And they can't deny that. So what they do is they conspire against him just like they conspire against me. Like they'll conspire against you. And here's what they say. Let's pass a law, because we know that Daniel prays off and on all day long, and everybody knows it. We want to get Daniel, let's pass a law that says for the next 30 days, you can't pray to any king but the king of Babylon. They said, that's a great idea. Now, I don't know if you know it or not, but you've probably heard the term over the years, the laws of the Medes and Persians. That term simply means that once the Medes and the Persians put a law, you couldn't revoke it. That's why it's, it was such a stern thing. It's called the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once they put a law in effect, you, nobody could change it. The king himself couldn't change it. So these guys knew once they got the law, if Daniel continued to pray to his God, they got him. And you know what Daniel did? He continued to pray to his God, and they got him. They brought him into the king, and he brought him into the king, and, <laughs> and the king says, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. <clears throat> And Daniel, he's faced with a real issue here. He continues to pray, and you know the rest of the story. They take him, and they throw him down in the lion's den. And these lions, this is the way they did it. These lions hadn't eaten for months or weeks or days, and they would rip. In fact, when they finally throw these other guys down in there, the Bible says that they get tore apart and killed before they hit the ground. And here's Daniel. They take Daniel, they bring him over, and they open up that pit, and there's about nine or ten big old lions around there, and they're roaring and growling, and they're all laughing and snickering, and the people that set him up are saying, <laughs> oh, yeah, we did this one, okay. They're high-fiving everybody, you know, and all this stuff, and finally they throw Daniel down there and cover that thing up. Daniel hits the ground down there, and he gets up, you know, and there's just a little bit of light coming in. The lions are all lined up looking at him. And over in the corner, he sees a lion that he hasn't seen before. And this lion looks at the other lion and says, boys, I want you to meet my man, Daniel. Well, Daniel's my man. 
And I know we're not in the millennium yet where you, you all are friendly, and right now you'd like to tear him apart. But the bottom line is, you know what, I know you're all lions, but uh, <clears throat> I'm the lion of the king of the tribe of Judah. So you take care of my man down here, and don't you, don't you hurt him. You know what, when you read that story, when you go back through there, the king who put him in the lion's den, he had the worst night in his life. Couldn't sleep, worried, anxiety, burping all over the place, indigestion. He couldn't wait to get down in the morning. I bet you Daniel had the best night's sleep he ever had. Oh, you know what? You know what? I got, I, I just know a little bit what it's like. I got two big dogs, you know, and they're one about 100 pounds, one about 90 pounds, and nothing better in the afternoon is curling up on the couch and have one around your back and one around your front and just feel that warmth coming off their bodies and listen to them sigh and listen to them, you know, snore and listen to them, you know, one of them has a dream that he's chasing something. He's going like this, you know, and they, they, you just like I know what the dream is, you know. I just know, who well, you chasing, you know? And, and, you know, nothing like, but can you imagine, you know, we all like to go to zoo. How many times have you seen that big old masterful, African lion, and you just like to go up and put your arms around him and think, oh, he's so cute. They're all beautiful. They're cute. I can't wait till the millennium. You can have one walk around with all you want. Don't try it now, but you can do it then. <laughs> he throws them down there, boy, and they get down that thing, and those lions just kind of all make a nice big old bed for him. He gets down there, and that purring and that thing going, and he probably had the best night of sleep in his life. Moral of the story is this. He didn't obey the government. He obeyed God, and he got busted for it. And they threw him in the lion's den. Let me say something to you, ladies and gentlemen. Don't ever be afraid to go into the lion's den when the lion of the tribe of Judah goes with you. This old world's going to have some things, and you're going to have to get your perspective. You're going to have to realize where your position is with your government. I never advocate revolt, never advocate trying to overthrow a government. You never keep me in a, white wing, a right wing or a militia group ever trying to overthrow anything that God does. I believe this government is rotten and lousy as it is. You're still under the power of God's authority for the purpose of bringing about the second coming of Christ. And if we got to go through it, then learn to enjoy it. It's just that simple. Now, here's the rules based on what we've learned today, and then we're done. When it comes to government, recognize it as God's authority over you. And a Christian shall obey what his government says. That's simple. You have the power in this country to change what you don't like through the voting process. If it works, fine. If it doesn't, fine. Keep your perspective. When what the government says comes into questionable areas, try to go along as far as, as you can, but look for the avenue that God has provided for you to put people or circumstances or situations like the models in the Bible that you can not obey the law but not get busted for not obeying the law. We already saw the examples. The third thing is if when and if God co- a, a commandment, a government commands or makes a law that clearly violates your structure of the New Testament church, not the side issues, not the issues that don't change anything about you, not the issues that God allows to happen because you and I aren't doing the job, real issues. Learn what they are. Then the rule is given by Peter in Acts chapter 5 verse 29 and this is what he says, we ought to obey God rather than man. And you let the chips fall, knowing that whatever happens, God is with you, and whatever happens is going to be exactly what God wants to happen. Quit getting your focus off of the, what you lose or what you have to go through or what you have to give up and start focusing on the fact what God has put you somewhere 
to do with you in that situation what he wants you to do. Those examples I gave you went through some of the toughest, hardest times you ever saw in your life. They never lost their focus. They never lost their perspective. They never let the circumstances dictate and override the perspective that they were God's ambassador. And they didn't fear the king no more than you should fear the king because the king that we serve runs any king down here. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.